is very much my I say that every time, and I am not, that's not just something I say when I'm here. I am very encouraged by this congregation in this place. Faithfulness warms your heart. And uh, every time I come up, I just want to say to you guys, be strong and be courageous. Um, you're, where God, you're where God wants you to be. And uh, God does amazing things. So, one of the things that the Holy Spirit has really impressed on me this morning is that there is somebody here this morning that really needs to hear the message I'm going to preach today. Um, that's probably not a gift or anything. That's probably just a confession that I really need to hear what I'm going to preach today. So, hopefully it's good for some of y'all, too. I've got my one Texasism out there with me, y'all. It was interesting, the last time I was here, at at River of Grace, we we audio our sermons, so I'm I'm used to hearing myself preach. But I've never seen myself preach before. That's a really humbling experience, (laughs) possibly even a discouraging experience. But I realized I, I... talk with my hands a lot, and I, I realized that at some point, you know, it's been a while since I heard myself record it, and I realized at some point I have mostly lost my Texas accent, I, which I don't know whether I'm happy about or sad. I mean, now people might assume I'm a Yankee or something. On the other hand, people quit, you know, slowing down their speech and not using big words around me, which is what they used to do when they heard a southern accent. Be like, I'm not slow, I'm from Texas. They'd say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize those were separate things. <laughs> Every region has its pride and its prejudice. One of the things that used to disturb me when I was young was how often people would come up to me and say, you look just like your father. And I would just, you know, no, nobody wants to hear that. No kid wants to hear that. And you're like, no, I don't. I look like me. I don't look anything like him. Uh, I lost my father when I was 21, and um, I'm, I'm actually now, this was the first time I had a birthday where I am older than my father ever got to be, which is a truly strange thought, because dad's always going to be dad. But now I, I really don't mind that I look like my father. I think it's a good thing, because people that know the family can look at me and go, I know where you come from. Well, so today's sermon is, is the title, the working title I have for it is Children Who Look Like Their Father. And I'd like to start in John 13 and uh, set the scene a little bit. John 13 is uh, the last evening before Jesus' trial and crucifixion. He's gathered together with his disciples He's celebrated the Passover meal with them, which was very, very important to him. Uh, one of the things that I think can pass by without being noticed, and I've probably mentioned it before, is that the Passover meal with his disciples was so important to Jesus that he celebrated it on the wrong day. Jesus and his disciples are having their Passover the day before everybody else because 
he's going to be busy on Passover. But he's had this meal with just his disciples. It's a very intimate setting. It's just his disciples. It's even more intimate because he has just revealed that he's about to be betrayed. And at the meal, Peter looks over to John and says, ask him who he means. Who's going to betray him? And Peter says, it's, Jesus says to John, he says, it's the disciple that I hand this crust of bread to after I dip it in the oil. And he hands it to Judas. And then he tells Judas, what you've got to do, go and do it. And Judas leaves. So it's now even more intimate because now is it not just his, just his disciples, but now it's just the disciples that are going to be faithful. And he's kind of summing up his business to them. And he comes to this remarkable statement in John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. That was so important that he felt that was what he should tell them. In some ways, it feels like it's really basic to, to talk about love. It's like, you know, this is, this is Christianity 101. And that's the reason you should preach it, because it is Christianity 101. If you fail on this test, nothing else you get right makes up for it. And we're going to look at what Paul says about it in a little later. But if you have perfect doctrine, if you're doctrinally correct, if your walk is blameless and you don't get this right, you don't look like the Father. We're given one statement by Jesus to show we're true disciples. And it's not a confession of faith. It's not, it's not even properly recognizing who Christ is. It's not a test of orthodoxy. It's do you love one another? Sometimes, as Christians, we can back off of that because we're afraid. Well, you know, if we talk too much about love, we'll get, we'll get sloppy in other areas. We don't want to. We don't want to leave the gate open. We don't want to not have fences up because you can't tell what could happen. That's not a fear Jesus has. That's not a fear God has, apparently. And uh, we'll get Jesus, have Jesus' view of it here in Matthew. Matthew 22, uh, starting in verse 34. Jesus had just corrected publicly the Sadducees on their understanding of, of resurrection. He pointed out to them that, you know, you don't know the scriptures. You don't even know the power of God. God is not the God of the dead, but the living, so that those that are faithful that have already passed, that's not the end of the story for them. And everybody's like, ooh, he shut up the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were excited about that because the Sadducees were their rival, and they're like, ah, he showed them. But then they decided, well, we're going to test Jesus. You know, the Sadducees had that test of, you know, we had seven brothers, and they all married the same woman that died. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? 
And Jesus had answered them. So the, the, the Pharisees are coming forward with their own test. And it says in verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law. That means he was well-versed in Scripture. In this context, expert in the law doesn't mean that he was what we would think of as a lawyer, but he, he, knew, he knew his Scriptures. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, biblical scholars have come up with a number of summaries of the Old Testament and I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but there's something like 637 laws in the Old Testament if you were going to try and keep them all. And Jesus is saying every, every one of them comes, comes down to this. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the Old Covenant comes down to that. And the Old Covenant is what prepared everybody for Jesus. So even before the New Testament, this was the heart of God. Classic Bible verse that everybody knows, even if they're not a Christian. Most people, if they know one verse, they know John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that anybody that believed in him wouldn't die Everybody knows that. God's motivation is love. And that's not, that's not a new thing. That's not something that God had to change, change horses in midstream to, to a different strategy. Revelation 13.8 says Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world even started, God loves the world. So love is God's motivation. But better than that, we can go to 1 John. And you'll notice between John, Revelation, and the letters of John, 1 John. I'm going to be, I'll get to Paul later, but there's going to be a lot of John in this. And one of the reasons is because John writes a lot about God's love. As a matter of fact, there was one scholar who talked about John in his later life, because John is going to outlive all the other apostles. Everybody else is going to have suffered martyrdom or, or just have died, and John will be the last one left. And this historian just had a great phrase. He said that in the end, John wrote with magnificent monotony about the love of God. That was just what he wanted to talk about. And it's, it's not for nothing that John is called the disciple Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all his disciples, but I think when it talks about John being the disciple Jesus loved, is that John may be the one that got it the best. It's like, oh yeah, God loves us. And to be loved that way, especially... You know, these guys were not the cream of the crop when Jesus called them, by, by and large. They were working-class Galileans 
mostly, with some exceptions, Judas, uh, and, and to be called by God and loved by God and picked out as special and have the sense that that was God's heart towards everybody, I, I think that just made John go, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus loves me. So we're going to go to 1 John here, chapter 4, verse 7. And John is, is writing to the church, a church that's beginning to go through trials. As I said, he, he lived longer than any of the other apostles. And there was some persecution in the reign of Nero in AD 69, and that's, that's when Peter and Paul are both going to die, as best we can tell. But then things had, had backed off. And John is living, he's the last of the apostles, and he's living at a time when we, he can see the persecution that's coming from the Romans on the horizon. And he can also see the problems that are assailing the church from within. And he wants to strengthen the church and, and give them comfort. And he writes about love. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Love is God's nature. There are other places in scripture where it talks about characteristics of God. We know, it says God is holy, holy, holy. Those are talking in adjectives. They're describing characteristics that God has. This is speaking to who God is. Love is God's nature. Now, sometimes people can misunderstand that. They will think, oh, I believe in a God of love, and we do believe in a God of love, and we're not qualifying that. But they then rule that since God is love, there can't be such a thing as the wrath of God, that wrath would have no place in God, because they're setting up wrath and hate as the opposite of love. We're used to talking in everyday world terms love and hate as if they're opposites. They're not. They're parts of the same thing. If I really love someone, I really love my wife, I cannot find enough hours in the day to tell my wife how much I love her. I can't find enough things to do to try and show my life, my wife I love her. Largely because I'm, I'm just blown away by the fact that there was somebody blind enough to fall in love with me. So I don't want to jeopardize that because those are few and far between, you know. It's like, oh my gosh. So I have to let her know she's special. But I love her very much. If somebody were to hurt her, that would make me mad. If it didn't make me mad, I would say that's probably not a great love I have for my wife. Oh, yes, I love her so much. Oh, you, you hit her with your car, whatever. Um, so wrath is not the opposite of love, 
Wrath is the expression of injured love. When God's wrath is revealed, it is because something he cares deeply about, that he loves deeply, has been hurt. So when we say God is love, that does not, unfortunately, exclude the possibility of wrath. Because the opposite of love is not wrath, it's indifference. Oh yeah, whatever. So people think, oh, well, you know, there couldn't possibly be a wrath of God if he's that loving. Yes, there could. The only way there couldn't be a, a wrath of God is if he just didn't care about creation. Hey, go on, do whatever you want. I made it. It's yours now. It's, you know, trash it, whatever. That, and, and we never see that in the Bible. So because I'm going to talk about love a lot today does not mean there's not this this side to it, this injured love, this wrath. But at its core, God is love. And when we love, we look like God. It's not for anything, it's not for nothing that Jesus says, you know, by this the world will know you, my disciples, the love you have for each other. For the first 300 years of its existence, the church in the West, and I say that because it was actually a whole part of the church that most of us nowadays don't really know much about, it was off to the East. Not only did the church spread into the Roman Empire, but it spread to India and China, and just about the same time that there are priests coming to Ireland and bringing the message of God to Ireland, there are missionaries in Sri Lanka. Um, there's, there is a bishop appointed over the church in Tibet in the 1300s. It just blows my mind, but it's part of the church we don't know much about. But in the West, in the Roman Empire, for its first 300 years, the church was either eh, kind of ignored or persecuted. But after the year 311, uh, under Constantine and uh, the emperor in the East, who was, I think, I believe, Galenius, wasn't thinking about history today, which is odd being a historian, but I wasn't. Um, they issued an edict of toleration, and then eventually Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, in the mid-300s, you had this young, I believe, nephew of Constantine who was, he was one of the royal family, but not in line for the succession, because Constantine had three sons, and they're all good Christians, so they're going to rule the empire together. So they start out by murdering all the rest of their family, and anybody else that could come to the throne, and then murdering each other. And this young boy named Julian saw this, and he's like, well, if this is Christianity, I don't want this. And he tried, tried very hard to make the Roman Empire go back to being a pagan empire. Didn't really work. As much as he wanted it, it didn't really work. And one of the reasons it didn't work is because the Christians, for 300 years, for all their other faults, were very good at loving each other and loving the world around them. And he actually writes a letter uh, to this pagan high priest complaining about the Christians. And he says, you know, it's, in, it's disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and those impious Galileans 
support our own poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. He was saying, these, oh, these Christians, how can we beat them? They love their own people. They love our people better than we love our people. And he actually gives advice to this pagan high priest. He says, we have to exhort our own pagan people to match this generosity. And the way we get them to do it is we'll lie to them and tell them that's always been part of our pagan religion, which it definitely hadn't been. So the world could see that Christians were different. Under persecution, they could see that Christians were different. In the third century particularly, a series of plagues swept through the Roman Empire. We don't know exactly uh, whether it would be the same as the bubonic plague or some sort of hemorrhagic fever, but there were many, many times where whole cities would just be decimated. Many people dying, and the official government would flee the cities out to villas in the countryside where they would be less densely packed and less susceptible to plague. And the Christians moved into the cities to care for the people there. And they got the plague and they died too, but it didn't stop them. Everybody could see, wow, these are people who love. And it was one of the biggest, one of the most effective evangelistic means that Christians have. Also, at that time, human life was very valued, was valued very cheaply. And uh, if you didn't want, if you had kids and you didn't want kids, you just leave the kids out to die or be taken. You know, there were people that would go to the markets and just grab the kids to work in brothels or work as slaves or whatever. And if you didn't want your kids, you just did that. But the Christians would go and they'd adopt these kids. They'd bring them in and they'd love on them. And everybody could see, wow, these people are, are they really different. Now, in some ways, Christianity, we're victims of our own success because Christianity so transformed the Roman world and so transformed the values of that world. And Western Europe that kind of came out of that world, that nowadays the world takes for granted a certain standard of, of human decency and respect for, for other human beings and mistakes it for human nature. People will think, well, everybody's basically good at heart. And they'll point to these ideas of common decency. We try not to wrong our neighbors. We, we try and be good people. And because, for better or worse, Western culture has spread around the world, these values have spread around the world. But the world wasn't always that way. A lot of these values, most of these values, came in with Christians and their view of humans as, as bearers of the image of God and entitled to dignity and love and respect. Before this time, that, that idea was absent. If you were in the pagan world and you did charity, you didn't do it because you loved other people and you wanted them to do well. You did it to show how rich you are. Look how much money I have. I can give it to these ignorant boobs, and I still have a lot of money. Look at me. That motivation is probably not entirely absent today. But that was the main motivation for charity before the Christians came along. And for better or worse, for all our faults as a, as a people, and Christians have a ton of faults as a people, we change the world. And because of that success, sometimes now it's a little hard to look different from the world.
for the last several times when I've been asked to preach here, I've been given a text. You know, we'd like you to preach on this text. That's always, you know, sometimes you're like, ah, how am I going to preach on this? But at least you know what you're supposed to share. When Nick asked me to cover this Sunday, he said, ah, just, you know, pick whatever you want. And I had been working through uh, 2 Peter, and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I can do this. And then I realized, oh, they're, they're working through Peter, and they're probably going to be getting to this, and I don't want to step on a text they're going to preach in lately. So this is what the Lord had been working on my heart about, uh, largely because I've been very discouraged by some things going on in the church right now. And um, not to name names, but there have been just some examples of different people in the church acting with great, great attention to doctrine and scriptural accuracy and absolutely throwing love out the window. There's, you know, Peter says, let your kindness and gentleness be evident to everybody. Somehow that seems to get left out. And I was just watching this and I was getting really discouraged. And I was thinking, boy, they just don't get it. And then I was just, I was thinking, man, those people have a total lack of love. I hate them. That's usually when the Holy Spirit you know, goes, you hate them. Yeah, yeah, I do. All right, God. <laughs> Sorry. At our core, we're supposed to be loving. And that is a sign to the world that we're, the, that we're God's disciples. We, we, nowadays, we can lament modern secularism talk about, oh, you know, the modernist or even post-modernist now, and now we're into post-post-modernism, which is, that would be futurism, I think, but, you know, we, we lament how values have changed and how, how society moved away from Christianity as, as at the base of its culture. One of the big reasons that happened is in the 17th century, you have these things called the wars of the of religion that come about out of the Reformation, where Christians who differed profoundly on doctrine decided that the best way to settle doctrinal disputes was to kill each other. That's an oversimplification. It was really political conflict, but it was very easy for the polit politicians to take the banner of a church cause to themselves and make it theirs. So what the world saw is Christians fighting each other to prove who was right. And to a lot of the leading intellectuals, that just, that was the exact opposite of John 13. They're like, oh, okay, they hate each other, so there must not really be anything there. I'm not saying that we don't want to be right in how we approach the Word of God. But we never want to leave love behind. One of the most messed up, fractious portions of the church in the early days was the church in Corinth. And Paul would write two letters to attempt to correct the errors there, to, to correct the division in fact, fractionalism. And um, as I probably said before here, one of the earliest documents we have of the Christian church 
that didn't make it into the Bible, almost made it into the Bible. The reason they didn't, the people decided not to include it in the canon of Scripture is because it's mostly quotes from other Scripture, but it's the letter of a elder of the Church of Rome to Corinth. His name's Clement. They call it the letter of First Clement. And he is writing to the Corinthians to correct them for all this. So this is, this is a really divided, divisive place. And Paul will write a letter addressing their various issues. And in the middle of his first letter, he'll say, you know, I've talked to you about doctrine, I've talked to you about church procedure, and now I'll show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It is it, is, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of Paul talks about love as the measure of maturity. He doesn't talk about doctrine as the measure of maturity. And we do want to grow in wisdom. But he talks about love. Going back to John again, at the end of the first letter of John, John concludes with a really simple thought. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And Timothy Keller has this great quote about idols. He says, I, we make idols when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Throughout the history of the church, the church has been pretty good at taking really good things and making them ultimate things. In, in some branches of the church, they've made authority, which is not a bad thing, but they've made it an ultimate thing. Authority makes a bad God. Other, other branches of the church seeking to be faithful and rediscover the truth have made doctrine and co correct belief an ultimate thing. It's not an ultimate thing. Some branches of the church make tradition the ultimate thing. It's not an ultimate thing. God is the ultimate thing. God is love. 
that's one of the best things about God being loved. You can't make love an idol, because no matter how high you elevate love, God is love, you're still worshiping God. We try very hard to be faithful to God, but sometimes, even in our our striving to be faithful, we can miss it. I was, the other day, I had, was looking at a church in a different part of the country, um, I was because I was really impressed by some something someone had said, and then I'm on their webpage, and it says, you know, it was an invitation to come join us on Sunday morning and worship the Word of God. And part of me just went, out. Now, biblically, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. If you mean it that way, absolutely, come worship Christ. But too often, it, it practically means worship this. This is the record that tells us about God. This is valuable because it points us to God. It is truth, and it is truth about God, but for its own sake. Jesus warned the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think by the scriptures you have life, but the scriptures are there to testify about me. You know, you can drive a long, long way between towns in West Texas. My, my best friend at the time used to live in Odessa, Texas. I lived in San Angelo. It's about 150 miles one way. And, um, you know, I'd like drive over to have lunch with him because that's what you do there. There's not a lot around, so it's not that far. It's a really simple drive. You drive 80 miles north and you drive 70 miles west. There's one, one sign on the way that says, you know, Odessa that way. That sign is to get me to Odessa. I would be the fool of all fools if I drove up to Water Valley, Texas. Or no, that's not Water Valley. That's uh, Sterling City, Texas. I've been gone for a while. Sterling City and stopped at that sign like, this is the sign for Odessa. I am here. That's not going to get me to lunch. <laughs> so we love the scriptures because they testify about God. But if we lose sight of the God they testify about. We've stopped short of our destination. We're children of God. We need to look like God. We need to look like 1 Corinthians 13. We need to look kind. We need to look generous. We need to look loving. Some people will say, well, it is, it is loving to correct error, and that is absolutely true. If you see somebody just trucking along, and there's a truck coming down the highway, and they're just about to walk out in front of it, the loving thing to do is say, stop, that's a truck. So, yes, it is absolutely a loving thing to call out error. But if your only context in speaking into somebody's life is, if that's the only way you love them, Dude, you're going to hell because that's a sin. That's, that's not an effective way to love. They won't hear you. Proverbs 27.6 says, wounds from, a brother, wounds from a friend are faithful, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If somebody knows that you care about them, if they know you're their friend, they'll listen when you say, 
that, that's not beneficial for you. That's not going to profit you. That's a dead-end road. But if their first experience of you is you telling them they're wrong, they're probably not going to hear it in the end. That fails the test of love. That is the test of you getting to say you're right. But if you are truly trying to correct somebody, you will speak in a language they can understand, and you'll speak with a tone they can respond to. And I can then, and that's me too. And it's just because of the way my heart is, I can, I can so see where people are being unkind and unjust, and my natural reaction is to be unkind and unjust. And it's like, well, then my criticism has no value if I'm attempting to correct you in the same way that I'm complaining about you correcting somebody else. It's like, listen, you bonehead, you gotta be loving. They're probably not gonna hear that. But if it's, man, I appreciate your faithfulness to God, but I'm not sure your voice sounds like it. So as children of God, we should look like God, and we should love. And I'm just going to cl close by going back to 1 John again. Chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. But because God loves us, and because God loved us by first giving him, his life for us before we ever loved him. While we were dead in our transgressions, Christ died for us. We remember God. We come together and we partake of communion. And in the understanding of the church, communion has two parts. One, we celebrate and remember Christ and what he did for us. And two, we remember that we are one body, that we are one family. So I would just ask you, everybody here is a believer. When, when you're ready, come forward and partake of the bread and the wine and remember that you are a loved child of the Father and that you are a loved